You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. podcast we've got lots planned for this show we'll be running through the latest happenings at the ipl where it's almost all to play for going into the final days of the group stage later on in the show you'll hear an interview with ebony rainford brent about the latest developments in the ace program that she set up earlier in the year and that we've covered on this podcast before and we'll also hear from south african journalist and friend of the show dan gallon about the quite frankly astounding recent developments going on at cricket south africa i'm yasrana and with me today is the editor-in-chief of the wisdom cricket monthly magazine phil walker and the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner. How's it going? Good. Good to have you back, Yaz, even though it is over Zoom at the moment. Yes, I'm, I'm currently uh, self-isolating and quarantining for the next nine days, I think, uh, because one of my friends who I saw last week outdoors and legally uh, has since tested positive for COVID-19. He's okay, so no worrying there. Um, before we get into the cricket, a quick clarification about what I was actually doing during my time off. I was not geocaching. I don't know what that is. Um, I had a lovely time hill walking in the Scottish outdoors uh, and went to Lake District where it was tier one. So that was very nice. Um, so it's good to get that cleared up before we get, get on with the show. My, my favourite bit, sorry, just, just, just before we got on with the show, Yaz, was, was Yaz's dad messaged him asking, I didn't know you were geocaching. What, what, what is that? And it, it turns out that Yaz basically communicates with his dad exclusively via the medium of this podcast. <laughs> so uh, uh, shout out to Mr. Rana and uh, yeah. One yeah, of your own. I'm sure, I'm sure he, he's enjoyed that one. Um, anyway, on, on the show, the IPL. Um, at the time of recording, Chennai are the only team out of the competition, while at the other end of the table, Mumbai are effectively through given their superior net run rate. Um, the game of the week was between Rajasthan and the Mumbai Indians, with the Royals chasing 195 with 10 balls to spare, with Ben Stokes scoring his second IPL 100. Phenomenal 107 not out against arguably the best attack in T20 cricket. Um, Phil, before the game, there were respective voices suggesting that David Miller should take Stokes' place in the Royals' lineup. Um, how impressive was that not, given the pressure that might have been on him, uh, the attack it was against, and the position his side were in? Is, is Ben Jones from Crickviz now in the respected observer category? He's, he's moved up, he's moved up the line quite quick. I was referring to Ben Jones. We'll get on to his article in a second. Some of the commentators were just referring to the fact that David Miller is a brilliant T20 player sitting on the bench. And Stokes, until that point, was um, really struggling to find any rhythm with the bat and the ball. Yeah, I know. I was just being facetious. Uh, I'm tired. Um, I, I watched all of that innings, fascinated by by Stokes' uh, willpower. Because he, he played one or two shots initially against the new ball where uh, you got a sense of... of of the Stokes, the vintage version of Stokes, but he was still wrestling with himself and he was still trying to find that kind of elusive timing. But what he did do is drive his, himself over the line by sheer, sheer dint of willpower. 
Uh, and this is what we've seen of him before. I mean, to take it back to the World Cup final, okay, a different stage, but this was a do-or-die game in a, in a world tournament where the eyes of the cricketing world are on, the, on that game. And just in the World Cup final, I mean, he didn't really time, time anything until the right at the death in that game either. But what Stokes does have is this incredible reservoir of, of self-belief. Uh, and, and he drove himself to, to, that, to that hundred um, and kept them just about spluttering, kicking and screaming in, in this tournament. But I think they are still hanging, hanging on there and it would take something remarkable for Rajasthan to pull it round with two more games to play as we speak. Uh, but it was a timely reminder of, of, of this, this cricketer's uh, world-classness um, and, and, and there was, as ever with Stokes, there was, a, there was a kind of an up yours element to it as well, I thought. Uh, and yeah, it was rousing to watch. From an English perspective, it was rousing to watch. But I also got the sense that the, the comment, commentariat were, after, were, were backing him as well. I think, I think irrespective of, of nationality, Stokes is one of those cricketers that we can all get behind and we can all believe in because you see how much he breathes it. You can see how much he sweats it and how much he cares. And he's had a rough couple of months off the pitch with his, with his, with his poor father, Jed, and so on. And, and, and while he will be kicking himself uh, about his overall performance, and to be fair, kicking himself for his performance in the last two or three IPLs, uh, after that incredible MVP first year, uh, it was still... It was still one of those classic, classic Stokesian moments. And as Ben Jones, who is great, and I think we all know that, as he pointed out in that article that was on Wisdom.com, Stokes retains that stardust and he retains that big match temperament and he retains that capacity to do extraordinary things on the day. Although his stats, both with the ball and with the bat in T20 cricket, are surprisingly average. What do you think it is about Stokes that means that he is uh, he consistently produces these remarkable performances under pressure? Like, like what actually is willpower? Like, how how does willpower help you score one hundred and seven of sixty balls against Bumrah, Bolt, and Pattinson? It's 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 the question that relates to sport, isn't it? It's the question. Um, what drives it? How how does one summon it? It's a it's. Look, people write books about this on this question. I, I, having having tried and failed to become a good cricketer, uh, and desperately tried to get there for the last thirty five years of my life, I, I think it is it is having this, the the strength of mind and presence of mind to make the right decisions, and not to be overawed by by the circumstances around you. As everyone else is losing their heads, you have to keep yours. And Stokes has done that throughout his career. Uh, it, it's about having that intuitive split-second clarity of thought not to play that false shot, not to take that third run when it's not there, not to, not to take a second beat and to have that conviction that just drives you and courses through your veins. And only the greats have that, only the greats. It's not about how cleanly you hit a cover drive. It's not about how smoothly you can pick one up off your legs although it helps it's about having the absolute belief that that's the right thing to do in that split second moment great batsmen have that and Stokes across the formats is a great batsman yeah I think the the the, sh- the shutting out the noise aspect is is relevant and it's it's it's, it's a tough because I mean Stokes obviously seems to perform better when the heat is on but there's also a, a thing of like shutting out what's outside while also having that drive you on the sort of a, an inherent kind of contradiction there I suppose and, and and you see it as well in 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 his fielding and, and and his bowling it's not just his batting you see that he he summons those those key moments for when it most matters you know that that first world cup game when England was sort of slightly drifting and then he literally plucks one out of thin air uh and then with the ball I think back to the uh what the the first test against India in 2018 on the final morning and that that was under immense personal pressure as well because it was just before he was going to go off for his court case and he just like just bowls Cody over but by sheer force of will, but also with a, a huge amount of skill that he's able to kind of summon in that moment, knowing that it's all on it. But like, I guess it, it's, I mean, I, and I think that we, we kind of all recognise that in ourselves at some point, I think, playing even low-level sport, that there are, you know, there are moments that are high pressure for that low level. And we'll all know that there have been times ourselves that we've like either risen to that or that we've kind of let the occasion, even as small as that is, kind of get to us. And to have that, 
magnified that pressure and to still be able to kind of uh you know re- respond to that pressure with and, and let it build you up rather than let it overwhelm you is a is, is a skill in itself i guess i get yeah just just to add briefly on that one way of judging it is to see the opposite to see the inverse of it to see players with immense amounts of ability who are technically sound who are uh, a bag of nerves you know a a, a a gaggle of, of confusion and self-doubt. Um, one, one such example I always think of, Mark Ramprakash, great player, went out in a test match, down on his luck, struggling for runs, and he told people beforehand in the dressing room, I'm going to sweep my third ball from Mushtaq Ahmed, irrespective of where it was, he was going to sweep his third ball if he hadn't got off the mark. That's just a tiny example, one of millions and millions and millions in the game of players who when confronted with the pressure of the occasion, the, the, the mind goes and then the body follows very quickly afterwards. That stokes his true genius as a cricketer, his refusal to give up and his clarity of thought in, in those real pressure cooker situations. Ben Jones, he wrote a wonderfully nuanced article on Wiz.com on Stokes before that innings. It was widely criticised by people who I think only read the headline. Um, do you want to quickly sum up his piece and also do you think that some of the problems he posed um, remain unsolved in regards to the makeup of the England T20I team. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the the piece, as as Phil kind of summed up, is that Ben Stokes is a a, a t- in T Twenty cricket, especially. I think in One Day cricket and in Test cricket, he is starting to build up the sort of the inarguable body of work just from a statistical point of view. But in uh, in T Twenty cricket, as it stands, he is not yet a player who kind of dominates games day in day out he doesn't have you know he's not like you look at Archer and he's kind of every game he's taking heaps of new ball wickets he's kind of no one can get him away Stokes isn't and, and you, you know you look at the likes of Bears I know that out of that summarizes team at the moment but uh, David Warner who like have the averages and the strike rates kind of thing Stokes Stokes doesn't have those and even in that MVP season a few years ago it wasn't really defined by him being consistently brilliant in one specific way it was kind of it was that Stokesian thing of of him being able to do the extraordinary when it counted. I mean, there was a, he was quite, he was consistent with the ball, but there was a brilliant hundred in there, a couple of fifties, a couple of failures, uh, a brilliant catch that won him a player of the match award in one game. It was kind of, it was a, a, a Stokes way to have a dominant season by doing it in all sorts of facets and in kind of unexpected ways. And Ben Jones's point, I think, was that uh, you, you, you can't just take Stokes's stats at face value, especially because we've seen how, He's kind of overcome middling records in the other formats to then suddenly become an all-dominant player. So even in the lead-up to that World Cup campaign, Stokes was having a, mid, a, a poor time of it with the bat. Really, he was like his average was okay, but his uh, his strike rate was like really down. He was yeah struggling to score fluently. And then in that in that World Cup, not just against uh, uh, in that in that game against uh, New Zealand in the final, but in the, the must-win game against India, he got you know that that brilliant seventy to sort of take England up to a properly match-winning total. He was sort of the lone hand giving them belief against Sri Lanka and Australia. And so like it just kind of clicked at that at that high pressure tournament stage. He kind of all of a sudden became that world conquering player that we knew he could be. And so because we know Stokes can do that in the other formats, that was almost like England, firstly, England are going to pick Ben Stokes because he's Ben Stokes. But there is an argument to that, despite other players having superior records, because we know that when it comes to those absolute crunch situations, Stokes will almost invariably find a way to turn it on. And really, this was Ben Stokes proving Ben Jones's point because what he'd said was he's a uh, a player with a, a middling record capable of feats of kind of indescribable brilliance. And that's what this was really. It was a, a, an incredible hundred, like uh, probably the innings of the tournament so far. And uh, and, 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 that, and, that, and that's what Ben Jones was saying. And it, I don't think it's what people quite realised he was saying. Uh, but yeah, a, a brilliant piece. I'd, I'd recommend you read it out. And I think it still stands true even with Stokes having a, Having played that knock, as as Ben alluded to in that article, five of the obvious six people you put in the top six all want to open the batting. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a really difficult one. Um, I mean, and, and you kind of end up with there being like sort of no sacred cows, as it were. Like uh, Johnny Bairstow might well be one of the best white ball openers in the world, but has been left out of that Sunrisers team because his form is his form's been okay, but it's not been not what you'd expect, I guess, from your, your star overseas player. And I guess that's, you'd, you'd hope that with the likes of Jason Roy also, he's like not quite as dominant a T20 player as he is a one-day player. Uh, so I guess 
it, it's 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 fudging it to say that uh, that everyone's in danger to some extent, and I'll say something more definitive in a second. But that that is true that like even the likes of Stokes, e- e- even Butler, when it comes to the uh, like the, the the later stages of a tournament, say if it's not quite clicking, I don't think England like, they'll, they'll have the the that the, they won't look past like uh, pushing him down the order. That's actually because Butler's now down to number five for uh, for Rajasthan Royals. That's but that's more a reflection of Rajasthan Royals' rudderless middle order, I think. Um, it, personally, for what it's worth, uh, I'd pick Joss Butler and someone else. That's that's how I would address the England opening T uh, Twenty issue. That's what I'd do. But then, but then, so, but the, the, it's it's it's. I think it's very easy to say you pick. Like you can quite easily talk yourself into a corner because like oh well obviously Butler has to open and it's like oh well obviously best opener opener has to open Roy you know what he can do he has to open Stokes best position he should open whereas I think I think but- Butler is the one of those who is most capable and most proven at not opening so for me that that's why he can and, and England don't have that they have they have Morgan in the middle order but he's the the only one truly suited to that role like Butler can do both things so I think he'll end up doing the other thing for me um yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I I disagree, but it does make sense. We, we can cross that bridge when we come to it, eh? But 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 so just to put you on the spot, when you say and someone else at the moment, who would that someone else be for you? Uh, it would be Johnny Bairstow uh, to open the batting with Joss Butler. Then number three, Milan Roy Stoke. I think it's increasingly brutal to over to overlook David Milan although the numbers are skewed by the relatively small sample size of his career up to now but he is the world's number one ranked international t20 batsman uh, and if we are talking about a bit of light and shade in this order and a bit of versatility and his left-handedness uh, I've come round to the Milan idea and and I wrote in a in the in the magazine two or three months ago that I'm still not entirely convinced that he makes that top five, but uh, having as soon as I filed it and saw it in print, I just thought how how kind of uh, sort of cruel that looked, really. Uh, and so and so I, I like Milan in there on balance at three. I think I think Roy's form. I know he's been he's been fine in T20 cricket, but Roy's form overall has been a little bit in and out, um, and no player is is untouchable and all of that. Uh, and you you do have to account for form as well, of course. But I think if everybody was fit at the moment in a big big game, I would want Butler Butler and Bairstow opening opening, and then then Milan. Or, and I still believe that Joe Root's a T Twenty player as well. Uh, and in a big big tournament under pressure, when it's not really about one one eighty plays one ninety, it's about one forty plays one thirty, and who can hold their nerve and who can really see off the real quicks and so on. That's why I want Butler in that side because. The 77 he made against Australia's crack, fast bowling attack the end of the summer was just masterful. It was a masterful innings, technically brilliant, uh, perfectly paced. Uh, and, and so I, I can interchange Root or, or uh, Milan at three. And then I think, I think Morgan, and, Morgan and, and Stokes take care of it at five and six, uh, four and five. Anyway. Who about six then? Yeah, I, 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 supp- I suppose that, that that that'll be the question for England. I think is 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 whether they uh, try to make one of their openers into a finisher. Like if they say to Jason Roy, well, it's, it's it's not really a thing, but but show us what you can do. Or if they try to go to one of those sort of those guys who have pr- proven in in the in the the, the blast level, or maybe even the T Twenty League level, but haven't really got that go at the uh, at the top level. So Liam Livingston is one who I know that the. Uh, the analysts and sort of T20 Twitter are really into, but I don't know if England will give him a go. So Sam Billings, I, I quite like as a, a kind of, he, he can kind of do all those, fin- the, the, the number six, he can do, he can kind of do the firefighting role, the scampering thing, and he can do the sort of the, the scoops, the flicks, the, the, the big hit. So I, 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 yeah, I like Billings that. is probably half a yard in front of Banton. Obviously Banton's not really batted in the middle order much in professional cricket. Uh, he's not good enough for me yet to, to come into the conversation as an opening bat, not yet anyway, although these things can change around. So Billings is probably a yard ahead of him uh, in, that, in that kind of engine room role. And Billings had a, quietly, he had quite a, quite a significant summer. Um, he's certainly more established in, in his own head, I think, than he was before. But, but I, I quite like the, the thought of Morgan at six even and, and potentially having you know, a Banton in at four or a Billings in at four 
without that expectation of bringing it home and having Morgan as your as your finisher, because as we've seen with Morgan, you know, he he, he just has balls of steel. And in your big tournaments, and we only talk about international T20 in regards to big tournaments, because let's be honest. No, no, the world doesn't doesn't hinge on on a T twenty between a couple of teams at the end of a of a test series. But in the big tournaments, you need balls and bottle as much as anything else, uh, and that's why Root is still in the equation for me, and that's why but, uh, that's why Morgan may well be my finisher. I suppose that the the question there really, in terms of when you look at England's white ball side as it was the white, as it was in the World Cup, is where that all leaves Moeen Ali because he has been England's kind of incumbent number seven, but you might say that Sam Curran has kind of laid quite a claim to that spot in the IPL. Uh, Moeen at eight seems like a, he's, he's not a good enough bowler if he's going to not be facing ball deliveries with the bat most games. Uh, but at number six, I think I, I would back, well, you definitely back Morgan. I'd, I'd probably back Billings to give you the returns over Moeen Ali. His, his, his drop-off in T20 cricket hasn't been as dramatic as it has been in one day cricket, but I fear that we're kind of coming to the end of the story of of, of, of Moan Ali as an international cricketer, in a sense, as sad as it is to say, because he's been probably most of our favourite cricketer, or one of them for quite a long time, really. Yeah, the the evidence would suggest that, but then we've been here before with Mo, haven't we? And he's so so mercurial that uh, I wouldn't write him off just yet. Um. There was a pretty ugly parade directed at Ben Stokes' old adversary, Marlon Samuels, this week. Following remarks made by Stokes on the TMS podcast, in which he said he wouldn't wish spending time in isolation on his worst enemy, he jokingly mentioned Samuels. You can look, at, you can look it up online if you want to. And I'm not going to repeat what Samuels said, because it was pretty grim. Um, Shane Warne got involved too. He said, I've just been sent what Samuels has posted to Ben Stokes. It's a very sad situation and he obviously needs serious help, but he has no friends at all, not even his ex-teammates like him. Just because you're an ordinary cricketer, no need to be an ordinary person. Get help, son. So, yeah, yeah. not great. I don't, I, don't, I don't think anyone comes out of that particularly well. I mean, but, but like Samuels might have sort of overreacted, but I think Ben Stokes must know what he's doing there in sort of poking the bear kind of thing I mean but Ben Stokes has kind of lit the fuse he just hasn't realized it's kind of leading to a box of fireworks kind of thing and then uh Shane Warne also him and Marlon Samuels have perhaps even more of a history than than Stokes and Samuels do and his uh his suggesting that he goes to get help is uh disingenuous to say the least I would suggest um yeah it's a pr- pretty ugly 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 incident all around and showing the the perils of of social media, how words get taken out of context somewhat, but also how these these rivalries get sort of uh, pulled out of proportion, but also just stoked on there. Yeah, it's not great. I, I thought what Stokes said was pretty innocuous personally, but yeah, don't want to go into it in huge detail. Um, moving on, India have named their squads for their upcoming tour of Australia. The headline news is the omission of Rishabh Pant from both of their white ball squads. He's retained his place in the test group. Bill, what do you make of that? Uh, uh, he's a pedigree cricketer um, who's, who's had a bad, bad couple of months. I don't think it's necessarily going to be reflective of his of his time with India come the fullness of his career. He's still their test match wicketkeeper. He's, he's made test match hundreds. Um, and he will be a key part of their, their setup going forward. Everything is amplified in Indian cricket. Um, and everything is amplified by by the platforms where we discuss all these things. Uh, I, I can certainly feel a degree of sympathy for the bloke because he's, you know, he's he's had three or four quality IPLs one after the other, uh, and he's not quite got going in this one. I think they've asked him to change his approach somewhat, be slightly less swashbuckling and a little bit more responsible. I don't know if that's maybe this, a smart move or not with him. You look at a player like that who is so untrammeled and unclipped and so pure as, as pure a talent that you wonder if, if that might actually be shrinking that, that spirit a little bit to, to, to encourage him to try and take it down a different, different path. Uh, but I'm sure he will, be, he, will, he will be back in the setup and Rishabh Pant will still be batting seven in four test matches starting from next month against Australia. Uh, and looking to build on already having made a hundred against them as well. It, 
it's, it will be in the, the big boys game where Rishabh Pant as an Indian cricketer will be judged. Uh, they have so many T20 cricketers that they can call upon. Uh, and T20 is a form game. I don't think we need to obsess too much over orders and players who are in favour and not in favour because T20 is a form game. Uh, and they have, uh, well, you know, an embarrassment of riches. Samson, Sanju Samson has, has got the nod uh, as, as the keeper. He might not actually be the, the first choice because, of course, KL Raul keeps as well. But Samson's just been waiting his turn. Samson is an outrageously gifted ball striker. And, and there's, not, you, you, there's barely a cigarette paper between Pant and Samson as ball strikers. Uh, Pant's, Pant's legacy, Pant's impact in Indi- on Indian cricket will, will come in the grown-up stuff. In, in the Red Bull stuff. Completely buy your point that Pant is a bit out of nick at the moment. Um, but your point about India's embarrassment of riches, I think is quite an important one. Because on paper, the amount of talent they have at their disposal, uh, they, they should walk a T20 World Cup, or at least they, they should be massive favourites for it. But I can completely see how they botch it up against uh, a side with inferior resource and inferior talent pools. I can so see a situation where, you know, you, you've, you've got... Two, three, or even four anchors at the top of the order. Uh, you're batting people out of position. Rishabh Pant is so good in those middle orders. Like uh, there are very few people who can come in from ball one and go crazy, and he's one of those. And I, I agree with you. At the end of his career, he will probably be judged more than what he does in test in test cricket. I think he will be a brilliant test player. He can't. He already is a brilliant test player. But India haven't won a T20 World Cup for a very long time. They haven't won um, a 50 over World Cup. Uh, outside India for a very long time. I think white ball success will go quite a long way in determining how Rishabh Pant will be remembered and how this generation of Indian cricketers will be remembered. And I think Pant is crucial to that success. Yeah, and I would just add that I, you, you say he's India's incumbent wicketkeeper, but him and Saha have been in quite sort of a strong competition for, for a while now. And I think that in terms of how uh, different... Uh, teams choose their wicketkeepers in England. The uh, the discussion on on social media and in in the in the newspaper sometimes is about picking picking your best wicketkeeper and their batting is secondary. When we know that actually the selectors, rightly in my opinion, look at the batting first, and then if you're a capable wicketkeeper, that's fine. Whereas in India, it seems that I mean, Rishabh Pant, even when he got those hundreds in England and Australia, was only uh, really holding a place for Zaha, who was going through a sort of a run of injuries, and then went out of the side not too long after and I think especially in Australia that's where you need your you don't that's where you need your best keeper the least I think you know you've got this 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 bounce that is beautiful to keep to and that sort of thing and uh uh, and so I really really hope they go with Rishabh Pan but I fear that this is a sign that he's sort of snipped down that pecking order too and especially if you just look at the makeup of their team uh their bowlers don't hugely bat especially their quick bowlers Jadeja and Ashwin both bat but Kuldeep Yadav was such a, a force towards the end of that series last time that you kind of hope that I think picking Rishabh Pant would allow them to pick their most attacking bowling attack, which I think is what they'll need to do to win in Australia. So I think that his runs would be invaluable and what he offers them in terms of team section. And I fear that they might not pick him basically, which I think would be such a shame to see India, like essentially, in my view, not pick their their best side for that that series when they'll need ev- kind of everything to go their way if they are to defend that uh the, what the Border Gavaskar trophy. Um, there's also a bit of, a bit of the fitness of Rohit Sharma at the moment. He's he's currently not in the squad, in any of the squads, but Mumbai Indians have recently posted footage of Rohit having a net. So there's a bit of confusion over the exact state of Rohit's fitness at the moment. Um, one thing I found interesting with the squad announcement is that it's come at the business end of the IPL where there is so much scrutiny over every player involved. Um, and in particular... In particular, the, lots of uncapped local players who are starring in the IPL. So, Ben, were there any other surprising omissions for you or players you think were unlucky not to be involved in the white ball stuff? Oh, there's, there's heaps you can say are unlucky, but that is more of a, a suggestion of India's strength in depth and the, the huge talent pool rather than like the incorrect selections, as it were. I think there's a slight difference there. The one who I think has really... Uh, stood out this IPL for, and for a while is uh, this Surya Kumar Yadav, who's um, uh, yeah, an, another in that in that proper kind of middle order vein. Not not so much an anchor. He's a guy who can sort of do a a variety of roles. It seems like a really sort of a 
he I think he's spoken about how he was a bit of a hothead in the past and that might have held him back and he's kind of a bit more of a cool character now he's a he's not he's not a young gun I think he's I think he's 30 years old or so uh but he seems like he's really coming into his his kind of prime now and that he's uh he's up there with any of them it's he's uncapped but he's uh they, they were sort of that that seemed to me like the most starting emission based on this IPL and I think he uh he responded so as he was what left out on the Monday and then on the Wednesday scored a, a, an absolutely brilliant seventy odd to basically book Mumbai, Mumbai a place in the uh, in the in the last four and uh, I think he sort of celebrated hitting the winning runs kind of taking off his helmet and sort of uh, just sort of patting his chest kind of leave it to me kind of thing to his uh, this team filled with superstars were saying like uh, I, not 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 like on the way not it wasn't at all self aggrandizing it was it was actually a very like. Uh, chilled cool reaction for having just completed such a a, a, a brilliant run chase in such a a, a, a a in such a sort of spectacular manner uh so he, he he's the one i think and yeah ravi shastri i think might have tweeted saying like be patient sort of thing to him so it seems like he might still be in the mix uh but yeah that was really interesting and especially having done it against rcb coley's team sort of couldn't couldn't have made a more statement and couldn't have made it in sort of like a a less bold way in a way but it was uh, yeah, it was striking for me. I think it's come too early for Padical, the left-handed opener for RCB. But he's been my player of the tournament, my certainly my breakthrough player of the tournament. He is a stunning batsman to watch. He is uh, the, the model is Yuvraj Singh, and he reflects Yuvraj Singh as much as I think I've seen any batsman reflect another. Uh, it's like he's absorbed Yuvraj Singh into his into his bones. Uh, he, he plays with the flourish and the class and the and the left-handedness of, of Yuvraj, and he's got ages against the quicks. He played Pattinson and Bumrah uh, yesterday in the game that we saw. He made a 70-odd in 40-odd balls, albeit in, in eventually a losing course because no one else got any runs for RCB, but it was pure, pure class. He's 20 years old. We're going to see a lot of him in an Indian shirt, without a doubt. I think it's really clear from watching him, this guy's played so much T20 cricket. Um, so I thought the most impressive thing in the innings was uh, kind of his problem solving and gap finding. So like when uh, the spinners would bowl to a field, packed ring field on the offside with, with, one, with one man deep on the offside, he would always be cutting the ball in like the exact point at which is most likely to go for. I know that sounds really obvious, but you can see like the deliberate decision-making in, in, in his shot making and also his um his kind of like ramps the spinners are so ugly but they're really effective he just like looks at where the gaps are on the field looks where the boundary fielders are and kind of adjust his stroke play um to that like yeah I, I think he looks class I'd, I'd be surprised if he played test cricket I think uh I know it's very very early on I just think that his his game is so much about finding gaps in the field it's not really it's not really founded on a really solid defence and really solid technique. I think he's a very modern T20 player. I, I love watching him. Um, moving on to Australia. So they have named their white ball squads for that, for that tour. Cameron Green, who you guys bigged up last week, the 21-year-old who averages 52 with the bat and 21 with the ball in first-class cricket. He's got his maiden international call-up despite a reasonably mediocre white ball record to date, but I think you can see why they picked him. Um, Obviously, his numbers are great, but listening to last week's show, I wasn't as blown away by the highlights of his 197 as, as you guys were. There were lots of, lots of nicks. He was batting quite slowly. Um, he's obviously very good, but it wasn't like watching a Ollie Pope County Championship 100. It might be being really harsh, but... No, no. no. I think I made the point uh, that I didn't, I didn't enjoy watching it either. It wasn't an innings that struck me. What did strike me was the reaction to when he got out which speaks of his hunger and all of that, three shy of a double. Uh, but it, it wasn't, frustratingly, it wasn't uh, full of the kinds of shots you'd expect from a young Aussie, Aussie buck. Uh, but that just makes it all the more agonising, doesn't it? Because he's still going to get 10,000 runs and none of it's going to be very nice to watch. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say two things. Firstly, Ollie Pope doesn't bowl 140 clicks. Uh, and then also, uh, like we, we obviously did talk him up so, sort of slightly... We're sort of preparing ourselves for the worst in the next Ashes. So at least we can say we predicted it. And also maybe if we heap a bit of pressure on him, then, you know, we can, uh, he might not be quite as good as we're fearing. I think that those were the twin sort of psychological things going on uh, at the back of our minds. But he's been hyped from absolutely all corners in a way. I can't think of the last time I've seen a player 
like built up. So I think Ian Chappell, like, you know, the, the godfather of Australian cricket in a way, uh, said that the, he's the most talented player they've had since Ricky Ponting. Like, you know, they're in some some in some eyes their greatest batsman since since Don Bradman. And so when when Ian Chappell is, is saying that, I mean, there's there's quite a lot of expectation on his shoulders. Uh, and yeah, not not just from us. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot of hype around Will Bukowski recently. I know he's still very young and he's had his troubles and there are reasons why he's not yet played for Australia. But yeah, um, interesting to see how he goes in that series. Um, moving on, regular listeners of the show will have heard Ebony Rainford-Brent talk about the ACE programme she set up at Surrey a couple of times over the last couple of months. Phil, you spoke to her earlier today where she gave an encouraging update on that programme. Um, here is that conversation between Phil and Ebony. I'm here with Ebony Rainford-Brent, uh, the mastermind, if you like, of the Afro-Caribbean engagement programme. Uh, we're at the Kia Oval. I need to say Kia, don't I, at this stage. Ebony, in brief, what is the programme? Why has it come about? Yeah, so we're excitingly announcing as an independent charity today um, and the whole programme really is quite simple. Uh, we we want to re-engage the African-Caribbean uh, community into the game. There's been a decline of 75% of players. Uh, black people represent less than 1% of the recreational game and it's all going backwards when other sports are actually going forwards. So we wanted to address that and Sport England have come in massively to support us. They're giving us over half a million pounds um, to be able to, over the next three years, try and make a difference. And ECB as well have come in to help us fund. So we're going starting in London and Birmingham with a vision to be in five key cities um, to make a difference for the black community and reverse that trend. What does the programme look like in real terms? Mm. Yeah, day to day. So we've got three strands um, that we're working on. There's a community element. So we will be going into targeted. We've drilled down into areas, delivering school sessions, um, delivering community sessions. One thing that's missing at the moment is talent ID. So if you think about you know, a junior football, footballer, how they get picked, is that not only is opportunities taking place on their doorstep, but also there are scouts, there are coaches looking for that talent, pulling them out and putting them to development situations. How raw is these, are these talents? Yeah, there? we're talking raw. So we're looking, so the, the, what we're looking for, and we, we've been going through with the, the, the talent specialist, we're looking for three characteristics that you can't teach. Pace, power and hand-eye coordination. So we're doing metrics and we're going to do some metrics to look at what exactly is the, the, the baseline level for performance kids at a certain age? And then we're going to go in, and when we go into these schools and communities, we're going to be running um, sort of tests. The kids won't realise because they're just playing fun games. Um, but we're going to start to measure, and when a kid registers on a, a level of pace, power, or hand-eye coordination that we know is a certain level of um, talent, they're getting plucked into first a development structure. So we almost hand out like a golden ticket, um, which then that means they're going to be someone who's going to be accelerated. And then if they get taught the cricket skills and we can transfer them, they can make it into the Ace Academy. So we're going to be quite aggressive. We want to be more like footballer, the way they go about um, looking and hunting for talent. Uh, an example would be, we've been speaking to some estates where they might have 4,000 residents on site and a, and a multi-use games area. And about a thousand kids so if we can over a period of six weeks invite as many come down get some t-shirts get some gear but we put that lens of um, talent id through it and then hopefully leave some sort of community session long term then that means not only year on year we can go in and, and access that but we'll find the best pull them out and try and accelerate that is one of the biggest challenges challenges overturning and evolving the perception that cricket is not a game for certain communities, mm. which is not just reflected in ethnicity, but also in terms of class and gender. Is that one of the biggest existential challenges to the success or otherwise of this programme? I'm going to use my own self as an example on this, which is I had no experience of cricket, uh, as in, you know, my, even though I come from a Jamaican background, my mum didn't, wasn't into cricket. So I thought it was crap. <laughs> just as simple as that um, I, I saw it on TV with whites and tea and you're thinking what the hell is that that's nothing to do with me I was a football obsessive um, but I like sport and the person who introduced me Tony Moody um, made it fun and made it relatable to me and I remember the first time I hit a ball my whole impression changed 
So I think there's that first thing of, I don't think it's a hard sell. It's the most primitive game. If you really think about it and you go in and say, whack this as hard as you can, throw it as hard as you can, or try and spin it as hard as you can. That's as simple as, I don't think there's any kid that doesn't like the sound of that if you make it fun. Um, we have, at the other end, over-engineered our game to seem a little bit more zhuzhy than it is. It's that broken down simple, and then you layer on the rules. Uh, the other side, I will say, is what the, the Ace did this summer is broke down some of the myths. I thought the black community weren't interested and didn't... That was That's a shift. I'll give you an example. I spoke to a, a GB sprinter in an interview. Um, her name's Amani Lara, and she's, um, she's at the highest level at 22 years of age, age. And when she spoke to me and said, my name's Lara because of Brian Lara, so my family are interested. And if cricket was given to me as a kid, that would have been one of their first choices because of the love. Now, these... There's a lot of people I'm coming across with that experience, that they loved cricket, but they didn't feel... Maybe possibly this this setup wasn't for them, but it doesn't mean they didn't love the game. And so what Ace did for us is the amount of calls we got, the amount of schools, the amount of parents, teachers, church leaders who were calling in and emailing in, saying, actually, we want to be reconnected because we still love it. So I, I think there's two myths. One, that... Um, there isn't a love. There is actually quite a few people who have that. More from a West Indian background. I think the, the African is a different... Um, we maybe have to sell it because it doesn't have that history. And then the other is for those who haven't been exposed, like myself, just putting a good person in front and making it fun will be enough. So this whole problem has got to change beliefs, perceptions and attitudes uh, in the way that we sell it. And, and it's got to be done well. So even the branding, the communication, the ambassadors, all of that has had, got to have a modern feel to make sure the kids want to be part. What constitutes success? Yeah, success. So my personal success is slightly different to the programme. My success is of, I want to see... Uh, mini Sophia Dunkley's and Alex Tudor's running around playing at the top end of the game in county cricket and it being more representative of society um, but actually to, what that success would stem from is really what we need to be about which is being providing opportunities in the community so success looks like way more numbers playing you know I'd love to see that that recreational number shoots up from the one percent close to three to four where it should be um, and that's done by going into targeted areas. Um, so that's a no-brainer. And then the other is actually seeing more filter into our wider game. So umpires, scorers, volunteers in the broadcasting media centre, which we both go into and, and possibly don't see anyone more than me, I would say, from a black community. Very often, occasionally, Tudes or Butch, but, you know, it's not, it's not representative. So walking into all these different levels... And, um, and, and making a difference is important. Brilliant. Excellent stuff. Um, Phil, what was your main takeaway from that conversation? Uh, that Sport England don't give money away willy-nilly. Uh, Sport England hold the key to so many sporting organisations, um, big ones as well. They are beholden to Sport England. Uh, Sport England have decided to give 500 grand over the next three years to this programme with the, the loose promise that if it shows uh, discernible benefits um, and they're very optimistic that it will, then that, then that becomes an ongoing support network for a program that has, has really been... Uh, been emer it's emerged on the back of, of, of willpower and, 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 as Ebony said, uh, she just got fed up. She got fed up waiting I asked her a question in the press conference if if uh, this is the result of, you know, decades of neglect and complacency. Um, and she kind of threw daggers at me because it wasn't that kind of press conference. But then she actually, she said, yeah, in effect, she just got too, got fed up. She got too, too tired of waiting for something to give. Uh, and it's not before time. They have a great group of support behind them from Mark Butcher to Alex Tudor uh, to Sophia Dunkley who spoke very eloquently as well in the press conference VT that was running um, it's it's one of these causes similar to Chance to Shine similar to the MCC foundation hubs that have been set up by the by the spirit of individuals rather than the, the work of a governing body um, and look we all know that we've we've lost a generation of black cricketers uh, and we are running the risk of losing a generation, not just of black cricketers, but also of working class cricketers. And this particular program uh, covers both of those, both those spectrums. So uh, 
it's it's something to truly get behind. This is not just a sort of cutesy, nice little news story to fill a hole. This is something quite significant and hopefully quite quite long lasting and, and, and can leave some real discernible change in our game because as we know, our game does not reflect the country that it purports to, to represent and provide for. Cricket South Africa is in a bit of turmoil to say the least. As mentioned in the intro, Ben spoke to South African journalist Dan Gallen about exactly what's going on. Ben, before we cut to that interview, do you want to give a quick background into what's going on there? Yeah, well, uh, Dan Gallen summed it up quite uh, quite eloquently that cricket in South Africa and South African, and, and South African cricket lurches. It, it moves forward by stumbling, I think is how he put it. It kind of lurches from one crisis to the next. And if there if there is a period of, uh, of, of steady waters, you're kind of wondering what's going to come next kind of thing. Uh, and so you can become a bit desensitised, I think, to, you know, hearing rumblings from Stafford and Cricket about, you know, behind the scenes machinations, uh, suggested player strikes, muted player strikes, that sort of thing. Uh, and then the headline this week or uh, a few days ago was that the entire board of Cricket South Africa had stepped down or been stood down. And, and, that, and that's the kind of thing that really makes you realise, OK, this isn't this isn't like any other crisis. This sounds like a like a huge deal. So basically just he, he gives a, a, some really interesting background on that and of how, you know, it's uh, uh, T20 leagues that couldn't get off the ground years ago that have kind of snowballed into this situation now, but also about what the um, what's kind of not being talked about because of this. So I think cr- cricket in South Africa was about to go through sort of a, or uh, was just starting to go into sort of a really important discussion around Black Lives Matter, the kind that we've seen in, England cr- in English cricket, but that is if anything, even more important in South Africa because of the uh, the history of, obviously, of uh, apartheid, etc. there. Uh, and that's been uh, sort of uh, washed over a bit because of this sort of the p- political machinations going on now. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was really interesting to sort of get the background and to, uh, and to hopefully see that there's maybe some light at the end of the tunnel. Well, here is that interview with Dan. Hi, Dan. Thanks for joining us. Uh, from my point of view, South African cricket often seems to be going through some sort of turmoil so from a f- fan and a journalist from a distance you can kind of it can go on in the background and then okay. this week I saw I guess the headline that the entire board of Cricket South Africa had been had stepped down or been stood down and it seemed like this is actually sort of <laughs> a, a, about as serious as it, as it gets kind of thing can you can you just give sort of like an, an overview of, of what's gone on and and how it's kind of got to this point yeah sure uh thanks for having me Ben um you're not wrong Cricket South Africa, or South African cricket rather, seems to move forward by stumbling um, from one crisis to the next. And that's kind of just seems to be how we've learned how to walk, you know, with, with this uh, really ungainly limp. So if, we, if, if everything's going smooth, uh, people get a bit anxious. But yeah, this is quite serious. Uh, an entire board stepping down is, is uh, headline news, as you said. Um, how to sum it up? Essentially, a report that was produced but not published, called the Fundudzi Report, um, proved to be the death knell for former CEO Tabang Moreau. Um, but this report, uh, he was accused of mismanagement of funds and, and, and illegitimate business practices. But if you believe the board, Tabang was the only one to blame, which is laughable. I mean, no one believed that. And by not releasing the report for public consumption. And, and in fact, if some board members wanted to read it, they had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, the, you don't need to be a rocket scientist or, or, or Sherlock Holmes to figure out that they are clearly trying to hide something. And by not releasing the report, government stepped in, sponsors were, were, were walking out, and, and the trust in Cricket South Africa as, as an organisation completely fell through the bottom. So... So the sports minister, Natim Tweta, basically threatened that unless Cricket South Africa get their house in order, they will intervene because SASCOC, the, essentially the Olympic body, who, who is the government body that controls sports in the country, has the authority to step in and take control. But obviously, as you know, this would be in, against the ICC's um, stipulations that, that governments can't control sport. The ICC obviously want every one of their members to be independently run. And it was a bit of a deadlock and we weren't so sure because for this, the board to step down, essentially what, hap- what needed to happen was the board needed to vote themselves out. So we were, we were asking for people who had already proved themselves corrupt and selfish to 
find some sort of moral fiber and vote themselves out. And the day before the deadline, before government was supposed to step in, as if miraculously, uh, the recommendation from the Members' Council, which is the advisory board of, from, uh, representing all the provincial heads, they did indeed vote themselves out. And, and, and now we have a situation where we have no board and we have no president. Everyone's acting. But um, it's a positive sign because we've now, fingers crossed, got the people who have, who have run this organization into the ground, at least reputationally. They've all left. So, yes, it's a, it's a mess, but it's a positive mess from which now we can build. I guess let's start with what the after effects on Cricket Africa will be from the actions of, of the board, I guess. So is it for financial mismanagement? Does, it, does this then leave Cricket South Africa in sort of a, a difficult financial situation? The fact that I guess funds have been squandered and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So the real problems, I guess, started a, a few years back with when Harun Logart's um, T20 Global League, or, or Glo- yeah, that's a T20 Global League, the failure to launch on that. And and when he was essentially ousted, I mean, it it, it, it was almost like a Game of Thrones coup, um, the way he was removed. Um, I mean, you, you've, you've seen how successful the Pakistan Super League, which he set up, has become. So the T20 Global League looked like it was going to be a success. Um, but when he was removed... Cricket South Africa lost faith, uh, lost the trust of the international investors, and because of the weakness of the rand, Cricket South Africa couldn't fund within themselves a, a an elite T20 competition. The Mzansi Super League that then replaced the T20, uh, the, the global T20 league, is basically just another version of 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 the domestic T20 competition that existed already, and that proved to hemorrhage funds. So. That, that immediately puts South Africa on the back foot. Then COVID came, which didn't help anyone. But, but without a, um, the opportunity to generate those funds, that was always going to hamper their, their, their advancements. And then obviously, um, Momentum walked out from, from the men's game. Standard Bank had, had walked out. So major sponsors were, were walking out. Um, and on top of that, yes, like you say, um, financial mismanagement, Board members were flying business class, were staying in five-star hotels, were racking up alcohol uh, bills and restaurant bills that would make your eyes water. So all of this was just, never mind that they were completely overpaid. I think uh, the latest figures was half a million rand a year for board members that were originally, when the board was set up, weren't getting paid any, anywhere near that. The, the board was originally made up of former players and people who, who, who sat on the board because they loved the game and wanted to see it succeed. By paying them so much, you attracted basically opportunists who saw this as a way of, of you know, fattening their wallet. So it, it's it's just a tumble dry of 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 scandal and, and mismanagement, and yeah, which has led us into, into this mess. Yeah. So I guess what what comes next? It sounds like, as you say, there there are acting presidents and acting everything. Presumably, what elections and some some sort of of, of power vacuum? Are there are there any candidates that have stepped in or look like they might step into that breach, or is that all kind of to come? What what are the next steps? Well, at the AGM, um, which is which is coming up shortly, they these questions will be answered. Essentially, a, a, an interim task team has been set up, hence, uh, headed by Rehan Richards, uh, who is in, effectively in control. Um, right now, they've just got to try and pick up the pieces. I, I guess stabilization is, is the, the primary function before they can, you know, start re- making repairs, it, duct tape and and. Uh, buckets under the leaking roof is, is, is what's going to be in place for the next couple of weeks. I think they just want to see the summer take place. England coming is obviously a huge, uh, a huge boost as well as Australia in the new year. Um, a few former board members have been approached. It's, it's almost like a, a cliched action movie. Um, I mean, Dave Richardson has been approached. You can almost imagine him sitting on a, in a cabin in the woods with a helicopter flying down and trying to get him out for just one more, you know, one more task. But it'll be interesting to see, um, who they get back. Thankfully, Graham Smith has, has stayed in place. He seems to provide some sort of confidence, at least in international investors, that the cricket side, at least, is, is, is in good hands. Um, but yeah, um, as I said, it's just a case of, of assembling a board who, who people can trust have the best interest of cricket at heart and, and, and not their own benefits. Yeah, so, and, and you mentioned that, that, that England tour, which is confirmed I think only last week and is uh I think described as being sort of uh fundamental to the ongoing financial uh 
viability of cricket South Africa, I think, might have been the phrase. Uh, and so, so obviously, obviously, great that that's going ahead. I remember, I remember before England's last tour of South Africa, which is only this year, there was sort of vague rumblings that that might have to be called off because of player strikes and that sort of thing. But this should go ahead broadly as planned, and 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 we should. It, I mean, aside from you know, no fans and it being odd from that point of view, it, it we, you won't notice sort of the ongoing off-field rumblings on the field, I guess. Well, that's. I mean, that that's the beauty of sport, right? Is that once the whistle sounds or the umpire signals the start of play, it almost doesn't matter who's the the, the acting president of of a country, let alone, you know, let alone a board, you know, the I bowl, you bat, we get on with it for, for a hundred overs or 40 overs, whatever the case is. So yes, uh, sport has always been the great distraction in, in, in South African society. We saw how uh, rugby world cup victory gave the impression that all was well in the world when obviously it isn't, and it never has been really in South Africa. So yes, it, um, relief, and relief for fans. I mean, it's been a tough year for everyone around the world. So, and 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 you know, as as an you're an English journalist, but you know, we all got into this gig because because we we started off as fans of the sport. I mean, how good is it watching your team? You know, I'm using my fingers in inverted commas here. How good is it watching your team play sport in an abnormal world while while the rest of society was crumbling around? And I think it'll just come as such a such a tonic for for the South African public just to see Quinton de Kock swing his bats and. And Anurag Nokia steam in with the ball, and, and and yeah, there won't be fans, and, and and the commentators will no doubt be constantly alluding to that fact. But yeah, just such a relief. Never mind the financial thing; just socially, it's so important that that a sum of cricket goes ahead. Yeah, well, that that's that's uh, that's that's comforting to hear. Uh, you, you mentioned the uh, the ICC side of things, and obviously they do have this this thing in their regulations saying you know no government interference. If if there is, you'll kind of be suspended or expelled and we saw that with Zimbabwe last year when there was a government interference of some sort and they were you know that they've ended up losing their T20 World Cup place because of it It had a disastrous impact for them uh is 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 that is that a possibility do you think or or is the feeling that the IC will kind of either turn a blind eye or that that this is somehow sort of above board kind of thing well that's an interesting question because I guess what is government interference because if if government interference is the government interfering well then selection to, uh, along selections along racial lines that you know those targets stipulated that's government interference and that's been happening in cricket south africa for quite some time i mean is is the sports minister threatening that unless the board resigns they will intervene is that not in itself government intervention yes they haven't technically intervened but their threats of intervention has led to this change you know if, if i threaten to to murder you that's still like you know that's 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 still a crime. I can't. You can't go around threatening to do things, even if you don't do it. So, it's interesting. I mean, the, the I guess the differential between Zimbabwe and South Africa is that Zimbabwe's government is keeping political prisoners. Um, it, it, it is beating people in the streets. You know, Mugabe obviously ran the country into the grounds, and and and. I don't want people to act me on Twitter and say that he wasn't a freedom fighter because of course he was, but he was corrupted. And I don't think any sane person could argue that that country was a democracy under his rule. So, and, and obviously that Zimbabwe isn't one of the big nine, as it were, or 10 now. Um, I mean, Pakistan's prime minister or president, what, is he a prime minister? I mean, he effectively selects the team now. Um, he's a de facto uh, selector of the national team. Is that, I mean, if that's not government interference, I don't know what is. So, the ICC, I imagine, don't want to be banning one of the few countries that can put a, a, a team capable of winning one of their tournaments. You know, this isn't, no matter what happens in Zimbabwean cricket, they're not going to win the World Cup. South African cricket could potentially. So, I, no, I, I imagine now that the ICC would be pretty confident that um, that's the threat of Saskatchewan intervention has at least calmed the waters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah, I think every... Sri Lankan press release that comes through with a squad says sort of like approved by the sports minister and obviously India I mean don't let their their women's team play Pakistan in the uh uh in in the uh, the World Cup in the World Cup league because of uh, uh and because of the tensions between the two countries there and they're obviously all still playing cricket so yeah but that's I hope that would be the case I guess uh uh but I guess the uh just sort of stepping back a little bit obviously there's never a, a good time for a, a crisis like this to present itself uh but given sort of i guess 
the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement has obviously been a, a global thing and we saw we still see the discussions going on in the UK as as it should. Uh, and, you know, Michael Holden talking about not taking the knee or taking the knee. And it felt like that that discussion was just beginning to happen in South African cricket. I remember Lungi and Gidi sort of stuck his head above the parapet a bit, I suppose. And there were sort of uh, ex-players especially sort of saying, uh, you know, this, this guy shouldn't be saying that. Why aren't they talking about sort of the stuff happening to white farmers, that sort of thing? Uh, and then maybe was it Fafdi Plessy said quite made quite a powerful statement about it, and it so, and it felt like that conversation was about to start, and then this has kind of taken preeminence. Is, is that is that is that fair? Would you say? I, I think that is fair, and I think that is one of the underreported um, casualties, as it were, of of this scandal at the board level. Like you say, I mean, to say that Lungi and Gidi stuck his head above the parapets. I mean, he was he, he was asked a question in a press conference in light of, of what was happening in the UK with, with the Black Lives Matter. And he just answered honestly and said, Black Lives have to matter. And, and when the team gets together, I will be raising it. And yes, uh, former cricketers who don't need to be mentioned or given any more airtime uh, on the show, they criticised him and, and, and that kind of created a divide. And, you know, race relations in South Africa is obviously so fraught given our history. But it was, it was encouraging. I... I you know, I live in the UK, so I wasn't at the coalface of this, but um, it was so encouraging for me and, 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 the, and the players that I was speaking to and other journalists. There, there was a real excitement that some painful um, experiences were, were finally being being aired and, and that this could lead to positive change. Um, some players... I I think we're we're being opportunistic about it, but that's always going to happen with any movement. You're going to have people um, advocating for their own gains, but yeah, of, of course now now with the board that that that's kind of hogged all the attention because if the board carried on acting in this way or or weren't going to resign, well then there wouldn't be any cricket to platform these important social issues. And and you know what, one of the non-independent board members, Eugenia Kula Amayor. I hope I pronounced her name correctly. She's in charge. She, or at least she was before she resigned or was forced to resign. She was in charge of the social justice initiative that Cricket South Africa were launching, which was possibly going to um, advance financial reparations for, for players who, who felt aggrieved that they were ousted from positions because of the color of their skin in, in the early days of democracy or even before. So real change was happening. And I, I hope that a stable board can seek to to enact these reparations because, you know, when, when you've got a guy like Mkhayantini saying that he didn't run from the, he, you know, Mkhayantini famously didn't take the bus. He, he ran from the ground back to the hotel room and the narrative was, oh, what a fit guy, you know, he, he's doing it for his country. This guy will, is, is such a fitness freak. Well, he's now saying that he did it because he felt so alone on the bus and that he, he would rather run. You know, that, that, that's, that's, that's really shows that, that all wasn't so hunky-dory in this rainbow nation that we like to mythologize. So I, I hope that we can get back to those conversations and it'll be interesting to see at that first game in Cape Town against England if the players do kneel. And, and I hope that they do because then that'll thrust the conversation back where it belongs. Yeah, and I guess let's end on, on, on a positive note, just talking about and the, the on-field cricket. I mean, if, if you, people watching the IPL, it's been kind of dominated by South African players to an extent. I mean, Fafdi Pasi, I mean, I know he's in a struggling team, but he seems to have got his groove back with the bat. Rabad is the, the bowler of the tournament. Amrik Nokia looks like a, a, a proper white ball bowler of note. De Kock's still doing his thing. I mean, Imran Tahir's barely got a game, but he's still, you know, one of the best legs in the world. Uh, I mean, Stafford always go into World Cups as one of the favourites and it never quite works out. But is, but is, is the feeling that like uh, the on-field stuff is kind of starting to, to click again, I suppose? Absolutely. And uh, domestic cricket returns. Also, uh, Chris Morris deserves a deserves a shout out you know he's such a polarizing figure and in fact before the last world cup i think i may have even written a column for for you guys where i said that chris morris shouldn't be selected and i, I certainly take that back he, he's one of the first names on, on on the team sheet now he's, he's shown that he can open the bowling he's a good death bowler he's one of the few south africans who can hit yorkers at will um obviously handy with the bats and and, and safe pair of hands so yeah exciting times on the field but that you know, that, that's the nature of South African sport, that no matter what dumpster fire is happening at boardroom or, or socially or politically or in parliament, we always trust our athletes, you know, whether it's our sunshine, the fact that we eat red meats seven days a week, whatever the case is, if, if we can assemble fit athletes, we can compete on the field. And, and, that, and that so often gets us through social and political crises. So, 
yeah, I, I'm, I'm really excited just, just to watch some cricket because, like you say, Faf's in his groove. Quinton's, Quinton de Kock is, is hitting sixes for fun over the leg side. And, and we've got some guys like Temba Bavuma and Tabraj Shamsi who, who I think are, are, are real quality white ball cricketers. So it should be a hell of a series. I mean, England's you know, players are looking good. Josh Butler and Ben Stokes and Archer, obviously. So, yeah, it should be a really, really good contest. That is everything. Thanks, Phil and Ben. Cheers for listening, folks. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend. And if you're feeling especially kind, why not leave us a nice, possibly even five-star review on the podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.